This is episode number 93, Lung Transplant and Blindness Avoided, with a plant-based diet with Kate McGooey-Smith. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. We forget that belonging is a basic need, just like oxygen and food and water. Welcome back to the show, guys. I'm so glad that you're here, and it's so cool to have you sharing this little tiny piece of the internet with me. There's been lots of good vibes flowing, and it's been pretty cool to have such a diverse group of podcast guests lately. If you're enjoying the show, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It literally takes like five seconds. You just open up the podcast app on your phone, type in my name under the search and scroll down and you can leave a review. It literally takes five seconds. So that would help us out immensely and we would super, super appreciate that. I also wanted to say thank you again to those of you who are financially supporting my work on Patreon. It makes a huge difference. You know who you are. Thank you again. And it's been really fun being able to interact with some of you and even get your help crafting some of the interview. So today's guest is something that is really special to me, and it's no secret that I am a full believer and adopter of the whole foods plant-based diet. I've been eating this way for this year is going to be six years and have seen tremendous performance benefits and life benefits to eating this way. But the really amazing thing about this diet is that I have come across so many people who have had terminal illnesses who have been able to reverse their diseases eating a whole foods plant-based diet. And a lot of us can get really caught up in weight loss or looking ripped. And there are diets that help you lose weight, but plant-based diets make you healthier. And a lot of these diets that help you lose weight aren't good for the long term. So I really, really like stressing that this diet is amazing because people literally change their lives and they save their lives eating this way. My whole thing is why wait until you're sick? Why wait until you get to the point where you've had a stroke or you have high blood pressure or you have cancer to make changes? Why not make changes preventatively and then you will never have to deal with it? Today's guest is really inspiring and her name is Kate McGooey Smith. And what would you do if you went from being known as the Energizer Bunny to everyone you know to having declining health, so much so that you are diagnosed as terminally ill with idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension, that's a mouthful, heart failure, sleep apnea, lung failure, and legal blindness. That was the reality for Kate McGooey-Smith. She had an amazing career as a nurse and as a social worker, and she was doing everything, and she just had all these things start happening to her. And she was given between two to five years to live, depending on what type of treatments she decided to go with with her illnesses. And it wasn't until she watched the popular documentary Forks Over Knives that she realized that there was another way. And I just want to take a second to say that Forks Over Knives was a documentary that I also watched that gave me a wake up call about changing my diet. And it's free on Netflix if you want to watch it. But Kate attended a five-day intensive program at Dr. John McDougall's Health and Medical Center. And 15 months later of a whole foods plant-based diet, her vision was fully restored. That's right. She went from legally blind to her vision being fully restored. She no longer needed a lung transplant. They took her off the lung transplant list. Her heart failure was gone, and she only needed oxygen at night. Now, that's a massive difference from just changing your diet. So imagine what it can do for you. Imagine the, the health benefits whenever you're not sick. And even as an athlete, imagine the health benefits. Passionate about her new lifestyle, Kate founded ForkSmart.org, where she offers coaching, consulting, and speaking. And she's super qualified for this with her background in social work. And we do start the show actually talking about her background in social services and nursing. And she says a lot of really poignant and meaningful things that we just don't think about very often. Kate's a really interesting person with compassionate insight. And I love this episode because we talked about not only how she healed herself with a whole foods plant-based diet, but also the emotional side of being sick and how to support others and what to say. Because sometimes whenever people get sick, you just don't know what to say. And she was really helpful in that regard as well. And one thing I want to point out about a whole foods plant-based diet is that 
sometimes people think that they're going to have to go 100% and that they're never going to be able to eat all those foods that they loved and were accustomed to eating ever again. And unless you have a severe illness, you don't have to make that type of drastic change. So if you just start adding in more healthy foods and resource I love is Dr. Gregor's The Daily Dozen app and it's free and it just shows you what foods to add into your diet on a daily basis. So if you're going to continue eating meat and dairy and eggs, just add in some of these other things and they'll give you some protective benefits. For me, when I changed my diet, it was a gradual thing. I realized I wanted to make the change, but I was afraid with how I was going to feel. I was afraid with what was going to happen to me as an endurance athlete. So I started changing out meals. I wouldn't eat every meal plant-based, but I would go for like two thirds of my meals. And eventually I just wanted to keep eating those foods and I don't miss the majority of animal products. So gradual change is something that I think is really important. And some people need to go black and white. They need to have that overnight change. But I think for a lot of people realizing that if you just eat more greens or you eat more legumes or you eat more broccoli, you're going to be healthier in the long run. If you want to surround yourself with other people who are trying to just add in more healthy foods into their diet, you're more than welcome to join our free Facebook group, the Plant Powered Tribe. And there's over 1,400 members in there. And a lot of the people in there aren't vegan or plant-based. They're plant curious or flexitarian or whatever you want to call yourself. The label is just a label and it doesn't really matter. So if you want to check it out, just go to Facebook, type in Plant Powered Tribe with Sonia Looney, and I think that you'll like what you find in that group. Another fun and exciting thing is I'm launching my own e-cookbook. So it's all my own recipes, my own favorite recipes that are all plant-based. And I tried my best to make them as easy and fast as possible because a lot of times I don't want to spend time cooking because I'm doing a million other things, but I still want food that tastes good and food that makes me feel satisfied. So Currently, it's for sale on the Moxie and Grit website, but I'm hoping to be able to make some changes to the back end of my website, sonyalooney.com, to have it available on there. But if you go to sonyalooney.com slash eat plants, there'll be a link to the Plant Power Tribe cookbook. And there's about, uh, I think there's maybe 15 or 20 recipes in there. And I think you guys will really enjoy that. I'll also put a link to my e-cookbook in the show notes. That way, if you want to check it out there, you can too. Awesome. So let's get into this amazing and inspiring podcast with Forksmart.org's Kate McGooey-Smith. I'm excited to talk to you and to share your story with everybody because it's a really powerful and really incredible story. Sure. In 2017, I was a busy mom of three, trying to nurture them as a parent and nurture my career along. And my responsibility was to be the clinical supervisor and manager for, and I started the program actually, for free on-site counseling services for kids from kindergarten to grade 12 for an entire rural school board in Alberta. Wow. What made you want to go into that line of work? Well, I remember one night when I was nursing, I had worked both in the operating room and at the bedside, and I was a charge nurse one night, and... uh, Usually you do shifts from even seven to 10 days, believe it or not, when you work the eight-hour shifts, which is pretty heavy going because it's not only physical lifting, but mental lifting as well. And I had a patient who had quite severe back pain, and her pain seemed to really escalate during evening visiting hours. She didn't have any visitors, and she could hear the laughter around her and people coming in because, of course, they had shared rooms. And so she would routinely ask for pain medication. So I decided after this first night, I thought, I'm going to try something different and just see if it works. I said to her, you know, what I'd like to do, I'm in charge tonight. What I would like to do is come back after visiting hours are over so that you have a little more privacy and I'll massage your back, get you ready for bed and everything. Make sure you're all comfortable and everything. And I can spend some a little bit of time with you. Would you like that? And she really liked that. She never asked for pain medication. I continued to do that for the rest of my whole week of shifts. She never once asked for pain medication in the evening. And it made me realize that I wanted to, even though my training had been very much the whole person, when you actually got in the real world, it seemed like it was gallbladder in room 58. And I wanted to make sure I was serving the whole person. And that's wow. social work. Yeah, that really goes above and beyond the duties of a nurse. Like 
and it would be really hard to maintain that patience and compassion in that line of work. It is challenging and you almost have to do it. And a lot of nurses, that's what their love is to serve. And it's almost that they have to feed it through the cracks, the hardcore skills that they have to deliver this essential service. And unfortunately, what we've done is we don't realize that taking care of the mind and spirit are also a part of essential services. And I saw that in the school board, even as a social worker, you know, people would focus on grades, just like someone in the medical profession would look at your physical needs. And we forget that belonging is a basic need, just like oxygen and food and water. Wow, that's such a powerful statement because all of us have had the feeling and maybe we're feeling it right now that we don't belong or we don't fit in. And that's a really hard place to come from, even in terms of loving yourself whenever you feel like you don't belong. Well, and I think it fits, it really dovetails into that question. And one that Brene Brown, for example, in her daring movement to be brave, that really addresses, uh, I'm not enough. It makes sense that we don't think we're enough because we're only part of us is looked after usually. You know, even parents, parents go through different phases of parenting. They go from very active parenting where they're making sure their kids have their underwear and they they eat properly and they've actually got socks on their feet and that kind of thing to more mentoring in the junior high level. Like, how do I deal with my boyfriend or girlfriend or my friends? And what do I do? How do I get along socially? So they're doing mentoring style of parenting And then as we get into the sort of 18, 17, 18 onward, you're really moving into consulting with parenting, that you're there as sort of ask a friend, ask an expert, ask someone more knowledgeable, and you're trying to give input when it's invited. And so those are three major phases that parents go through amongst all the other hair pulling episodes in between. And we forget that we have different needs at different times in our life. And that doesn't make us a failure because a need reoccurs either. I love that. Like I haven't done any parenting yet. So to hear the different phases of parenthood actually, yeah, it it sounds really, makes it sound even more fun because I think that if you haven't had kids or you only have little kids, you're kind of almost intimidated by this idea that it's going to be that way forever whenever you know it's not going to be that way forever. Well, and what's difficult often when you have more than one child, there's two difficulties with having more than one child. There's difficulties with having just one child, because first of all, you end up blaming yourself for everything. You think that you're a lot more powerful and influential than you are when a child is surrounded by so many people, whether it's someone in the store that treats them rudely or something, and they don't know they're adjusting to the world and what to do or the multiple teachers they have through the years. But when you have more than one child, you sort of realize how different kids' personalities are. And you almost go, hey, I I think I was there at conception, but how the heck did this kid come out? Like, how did that be a possibility? And you start to realize that there really are, the snowflakes phenomena is really true, that they're a mixture of you or they might be very far from the tree. And you, it's really hard for you to relate and challenging. But, you know, this parenting just doesn't have to be with children there are people who are parents of pets and they know that a puppy has much different needs and you're more hands-on, more active parenting as a pet parent than you are when that, that dog is more senior. You don't have to worry in the same way. The dog will let you know it has to go out. You can even tell when it wants to go for a walk or how to handle certain situations of it anxious around crowds because you get really familiar. So you've done all this amazing work helping other people and you've done some clinical social work and it sounds like a lot of your life has been dedicated to looking and looking at other people to help them. But during this time, was it really hard to actually look internally and take care of yourself? You know, there's a sort of saying if you, you know, you have to learn how to ask for help. I think also you have to learn to accept that people may not help you. And I was told a story really early on with my first child. I went to a kind of daytime mother's group that what we did is we had mothers would take turns looking after the kids while the other mothers went and heard from a guest speaker in the community or whatever. And one day a woman came in and she shared about the loss of her child. And her child had something like leukemia. It was a a chronic ongoing situation that, 
you know, it was hard to know whether or not there would be any possibility of wellness or if it would become terminal. And at one point, the child had to go in the hospital and it was terminal at that point. She knew. And she called a list of 10 people to reach out. And people told her all sorts of things like, I'm busy shopping. I have to go out tonight. I have, And all she asked was, could you stay with my other children so I could be with my daughter? Like she's not going to make it. Wow. And yet wow. people, nine out of 10. And what I was amazed at, I've carried that story with me, that it was the 10th person who finally said yes. And the fact that she never, ever gave up. That was really powerful. And so when we hear about just learn to ask for help, we're not always prepared the fact that we're going to hear no, not now, maybe not. Because I've not had a problem asking for help on behalf of other people. I think what I was afraid of, and I think this is why other people are afraid to ask for help, they're afraid of what they take as when someone says no, it's like a rejection. Hmm. Do you think also, though, it could also be like if somebody says yes, people are worried about the reciprocity aspect of that? I think so. Well, especially there's people who go, well, you can pay me back or, you know, now you owe me. Like, I mean, sometimes it's really based on reality. There are people who it's it's give and take and it has to be 50-50 rather than more realistic. There's going to be times when it has to be 90-10. Someone just isn't in that and maybe they'll be able to give it to you a year from now or something, but not right now. And, you know, I think going in with maybe not totally realistic. And I did have taught my kids over the years that you can always ask for anything as long as it's asked for respectfully and that you respectfully accept no, because people do have a right to say no. And sometimes those people do regret that they did say no at the time. But it's a matter of, you know, if you would want to have the right to say no, you have to give that right to other people. So that's where I think the reciprocity of rights is really important. I don't know if anybody wants to have a score sheet. That feels because they don't know if they can repay the debt somehow. There's some debts, like the debt that we owe our parents, we can never repay. We can pay it forward, but it's hard to repay it to them. Yeah. So whenever you were going along in your career, was there a point where you realized that you weren't taking care of yourself? I started to realize that it was getting more and more demanding. So what I did is I started working on my schedule so that I would end up being at the main office rather than try to take a clinical load as well as supervise and manage an entire program, especially as it grew. It grew from myself, period to involving sort of 13 counselors and 12 school sites. So I, yeah, it grew, you know, and that was by the time six and a half years later, that's what it had, it had more than grow into that. I had to grow into that in a matter of a couple years and then maintaining it and trying to make sure that everybody is accountable and we're doing the work that we say we're doing and dealing with funders. That was another challenge where I had to find the funding even though the institution was certainly willing to support it, they also needed additional external funding to help support the program as well. And so I started to look at ways to say, hey, on the weekend, I'm not going to try not to look at emails or try not to. And even now, I was just thinking, I've got to put on my website that I will not answer emails on the weekend so that I don't have people let down. But one of the things I used to do is make it really clear that I didn't deal with crises. And I had on the back of our business cards, all the counselors, I listed all the crisis-like lines that people could call. So the business card became a resource card as well for people. And I also would say I check my messages at 9, noon, and 3 p.m. So people weren't disappointed if they could not, you know, if they called at 4 o'clock, I'm not going to check till the next day. So I tried to look at ways to start creating boundaries. I was getting good at that toward the last probably year. And then I, of course, you know, I didn't get to benefit as fully as I would have liked to, especially when you're growing a program. I think that's really hard. Just like when parents are in the middle of those years where all the kids are in school and there's lots of demands and everything going on, you you feel more full of life than ever because so much is asked of you. You don't realize how many resources you have within yourself to pick yourself up every single day and get food on the table at night and all those kind of things and tuck them in bed. 
and go on to the next day. So it's very full of life, but it would be so nice if parenting was stretched out. And I think that's like with a lot of things when we're starting a career, it'd be so nice if we could stretch out that experience instead of having it feel like it's more crammed in at the beginning. When did you start noticing that you were starting to have health incidences? My husband, he always called me the Energizer Bunny. And it was almost like someone had taken a battery out of my pack because I found myself, I usually used to jump out of bed, get dressed, and I was off. And I always looked forward to my days. And that part, my looking forward to didn't change. What I found is I just wasn't jumping out of bed. And then I noticed I was getting some swelling around my abdomen and lower legs. And I felt like it seemed to take me longer to get dressed. And then I found myself going, well, I won't go to the, I was going to the gym at least three times a week. And I'd like, okay, I'll skip it this time. And then, and I found it harder that way. And I had a, an office chair that I could wheel around. And I always got up, I deliberately put my filing cabinet across the room. So I would always get up and have a physical break because you do do a lot of sitting when you're counseling. So that's an (laughs) occupational hazard that you have to be aware of. And so I would deliberately do that between, so I'd be have to walk around and I would walk down a hallway or make a point of that. And then I noticed I was actually pushing my chair over to the filing cabinet and I'd never done that before. And it was just those little, you know, they don't sound subtle when I'm giving the list now, but I didn't see them all as a list at that time. I just like, oh, this would happen a couple times a week. And then it happened a little bit more and, It was a little bit like, you know, frog in the boiling water. The water was slowly turned up. And so I kept dismissing it as I'm busy. It's getting toward the end of the year. But I noticed one of the things, it was another counselor who said to me, I was having a meeting. I had a meeting with all the counselors in the fall and then all this in sort of June. And she said, Kate, you still have that cough. And I was like, I had totally forgotten. I was so used to it. It was a persistent dry cough. And I noticed like I ended up putting up two pillows and that allowed me to sleep. And so you make these small adaptations without looking at the big picture. I was really in the trees rather than having a forest or even an aerial perspective. So started add those up. And then in the fall, I thought, okay, the summer I'll get more rest and, and I'll help. But in the fall, I was having all the things except they were even more increased And one day I I just said to my husband, I have to go to urgent care. Like, I just can't do another day like this. I'm so already dead. And I was getting in my pajamas and stuff like that. And I just kept thinking, well, that's good. I'm going to bed earlier, you know. And uh, I went and that's when they diagnosed me with type 2 diabetes. And I was like, gosh, I was a nurse. I should have known better. But I know how that can, that's like kind of blood pressure. It sort of slips up on you. And then they noticed some heart abnormalities at the time, and that required a lot more investigation. And I had a sleep apnea test and found out I had severe sleep apnea. And then they discovered, sort of a few months in, they redid the tests, and they said I was diagnosed with idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension, which means... I say idiopathic, even the idiots don't know the cause or cure. And it's pulmonary arterial hypertension is very localized. It's in the pulmonary arteries of the lungs where there's high blood pressure. So in fact, when people hear hypertension, they go, oh, just take some medication. You'll be fine. It's not like that. You actually have very low blood pressure. You have something like 100 over 50, something like, and you faint and you have dizzy spells and you're gasping for air, that kind of thing. So within months, I was on oxygen. So I had a plastic mustache. And then within a few more months, I became blind. So I couldn't even see my teeth in the vanity mirror when I brushed my teeth. All I'd see is this black hole. And I would kind of have to kind of like I was a drunk driver trying to brush my teeth because I was like, where's my mouth? And if someone came to the door, it was a nice, bright, sunny day here in Calgary. Uh, I'd open the door. All I'd see is bright light. I couldn't, if they even talked, I like I'd have to wait for a little bit to figure out who they were. Many people forget to identify themselves to a blind person. One of the first things you say is, hi, it's Bob. Hi, it's Jane. You know, that kind of thing to orientate a blind person, because otherwise they have to keep listening to you to try to figure out who it might be. They don't know if it's an adult, a child, whoever. 
Wow, that's a really rapid and probably shocking to you decline. It is. There I was filling an oxygen tank, scuba diving on land, very heavy on your shoulders. But the wheel cart they give you, they don't give you the nice ergonomic golf cart type of cart to wheel your tank of oxygen around. They, you know, it's one of those that little pebble on the street, it turns, twists your wrist right around. You know, you lose total control. So I ended up getting a knapsack that I could put a cylinder of oxygen in and it gave me more freedom. But it was very heavy, really started my shoulders after, you know, I was on it like for five, over five years, started to deteriorate. And then I had to use a white cane. So when someone saw me, to be honest with you, that made so many people afraid that they didn't really want to even say hello to me. And that was a real shock to be in a community where, you know, I had dealt with people and served them all those years and that they just, I was like the car accident that had come off the pages. Like, Hey, if someone, the energizer bunny can go down this fast and and whatever, this doesn't make sense. And so when things don't make sense, often people retreat to silence. And the unfortunate result is when you're on the receiving end of silence, you then imagine what they're thinking or feeling. And it could be totally inaccurate. Yeah. And I think that a lot of times people, and I'm not making excuses for them, but like people don't know what to say. So like, what advice can you give people whenever they see somebody where they're like, God, like it happens with death. It happens with disease. It happens with all these traumas and, or someone loses their job and people go into the avoidance mode because they just don't know what to say. So what should they say? Well, I think one of the first things is that whenever you're uncertain, go from it's my problem to an our problem. And that is to be able to say to someone, you know, I really I'm at a loss of words. I just don't know what I could say or do. I wish you weren't going through this. So it's not sympathy. It's not, you know, but it's also kind of letting them know that you're struggling, but make it an hour. And so that's becomes an invitation for the person to say, I'm just really glad that you invited me for coffee. Like people want to be seen beyond their disability or their challenge, no matter what it is. However, they don't want it to be totally discounted. And that's the fine nuance. You know, I've been in line at Starbucks, blind and on oxygen. And I can only remember once when someone offered to let me go ahead of them. You know, and you think like, and I know that people, and and I think the same thing has happened with women and pregnancy is sort of like, hey, treat me just like, don't treat me anything special, you know. But the thing is, a woman's body during pregnancy is altered. And it doesn't mean that she's less effective or anything like that. But there may be some accommodation that needs to be made. That's why we have on buses, like, please let someone who is pregnant or disabled sit down. Because their their gravity isn't so great on a, a bus that's driving full speed down the the road kind of thing. And it would be helpful for her safety and the safety of other people, you know, that she'd be able to sit down. So, and I think we haven't done that nuance yet of recognizing there's still the person in that, you know, looking past the disability, but not ignoring the disability, if that makes sense. Definitely. So I wanted to ask you because you had all of these things happen to you And in your line of work, you're helping lots of other people deal with their crises and and things that came up. So what was your mindset whenever you started learning all these things and when all these things started happening? Because I imagine it wasn't easy. Well, when I was told right in the office there that I had two to five years to live, two years to live without treatment, five years to live with treatment. And the treatment was really heavy duty, hardcore drugs And one pulmonologist has said, this is like having the worst form of cancer. And so the drugs are very toxic and very difficult. And they actually do a right heart catheterization to make sure it's kind of the gold litmus standard test that, you know, you really have this disease because if you, you were to have those drugs, there was one drug, for example, that was an IV infusion that had a pump and the pump had tiny little tines and it was pumped at like literally a droplet kind of a minute. If that, it only had about two or three mils altogether, which is a very tiny, tiny little bit of fluid. But if it had gone in all at once, I would have been dead. 
That's actually what they told us. I had to carry around a bag of clamps so it could be clamped and I could be rushed to it. I'd have to be rushed to emergency immediately to save my life. And so, and that's the medication to help you live longer because all it does is slow the progression of the disease, they hope. And so, you know, I remember when I heard, to be honest, that I had a terminal illness, my first thought to be, and I think it's because of my nursing background, is I thought, oh my God, I'll be a patient the rest of my life. That was actually more upsetting than getting the terminal diagnosis, <laughs> is knowing that I would have to, I mean, I love many things about nursing and the medical profession. I have a lot of admiration, but I also know that they still have an expert, non-expert model. And they're just starting to talk about patient engagement and talking about patients as partners. I mean, they're talking it, they're not walking it yet, you know, starting to get into the language that we have to listen to what patients want, what they can handle, what they think is manageable, what kind of additional support they need to make it work, make be able to be compliant with a certain treatment. That was never talked about before. You know, it was the doctor who was smoking the cigarette who said, you know, stop smoking. It's not good for you kind of thing. And we've evolved from then where doctors think, well, maybe we should not be smoking either. But it hasn't necessarily gone. It's kind of like the doctor, you go in and you say, they ask you, how are you doing? And within literally 30 seconds, they have a stethoscope on you and they say, Shh. And you never get to say anything else. I can say I have five specialists. Not one of them has asked me what my daily life has been like. Wow. Yeah. Whenever you find a good doctor that will spend that time with you, because it's like an yeah. in-out business and it, you want to feel like a person, it is. not and, and a condition. A of, and so some of the doctors, I mean, it's very rare, but a few have considered having like a social worker or someone on staff to help deal with those kind of needs so that you're treating the whole person if they can't do it and they want to strictly to the physical need, then that's a way of doing that. And so that's why I meant that is that I found like I was having to do a lot of ongoing education and advocacy for patient. Doctors communication is really, really underdeveloped at this point and it needs and many of the other healthcare providers to be honest occupational therapists a lot of other ones and even nurses unfortunately they are so demanded by to be so highly skilled in technical skills that sometimes they leave out how to appropriately listen and yet ironically the first access of information that's so vital is to hear from the patient How's this medication affecting you? How are you doing? Like, you know, what are your activities of daily living? How is this impacting you? What's getting in the way? What's the obstacle getting in the way of complying with this drug or this treatment? And that gets underutilized, unfortunately, that information, yet it's very vital. So whenever you heard all of this information, like terminal illness, these hardcore drugs, how did you deal with the acceptance portion of the and like thinking, why me? How did you deal with all those thoughts? Well, you know what? I really decided, I think it was a long time ago, probably, because I grew up with a developmentally delayed brother who at that time, just by way of language, you know, when I was growing up with him, he was called mentally retarded at that point. It was not called developmental delay. And my parents started the first, what they called integration program. It's called junior opportunity classes. And they were classes that were right in regular schools in Ontario that had never been done before. People with challenges like this were often put in institutions or left at the hospital to die from, you know, allowing them just to die, not feeding them and that kind of thing. So it was really unfortunate. So I saw, you know, I didn't ask then why my brother and not us. I did hear the story behind it that the actual, the doctor was an alcoholic who delivered my brother and it was December 20th. And that's what they think he was uh, probably under the influence because it was a noxie at birth. So it was a, a very poor delivery that happened. Whether that's totally realistic or not, I'm not sure. 
but I do know that I saw how my brother was treated at times and we really became advocates, our whole family, all of that time for him. And so it made me realize the why, why me? I guess I just decided my reference to life is God. And I just thought, I'm going to let God do the heavy lifting. I'll find that out down the road. After I die, I'll find out all those questions. I don't know why. But what my job in social work was really in my therapeutic relationship with people is how do I take their suffering and make it from being wasteful to purposeful? So I tried to look for purpose in the suffering. You know, maybe if I'm sitting for hours in the patient, I could talk to somebody else and they might feel better. I would feel better. You know, Mm -hmm. I could do something like that. I could end up writing articles. I could be doing, see other ways I could contribute in the world. So that's what led me to form Fork Smart and make that kind of contribution. So how did you find plant-based lifestyle to help you with your diagnosis? Well, it was a very happy accident. We, uh, for example, Stephen Colbert, when he was on the comedy network as Stephen Colbert, the alter ego, the ultra conservative, I didn't know anything about him. I turned on the television one night and, and, for example, he was on. I thought it was from this Fox News I had heard about on the radio because he said such bizarre stuff. I didn't know it was a comedy network. We had a really big screen TV so I could possibly see something. And I honestly did not. I couldn't even read the words comedy on the bottom. And so one night I turned on the television and up came George Stropanopoulos and I recognized his voice and he said he started his show off and I can't believe just even the timing of the show and so I I do give God credit for this because I was really searching and he said I saw a documentary called Forks Over Knives it changed my life it might change yours that's all I'm going to say and I was totally intrigued I just was I've always been a really curious learner and I had just one, a application through the Canadian National Institute for the Blind to be able to have voice activated software so that I could be able to hear things and look up things on the computer. And the whole goal of that software, I put in my proposal to, to get it because it was very expensive and I couldn't afford it, was I wanted to write goodbye stories for my children. And that was my whole goal. Because I, I was not taught, like I was not going to see them even graduate from high school. I wouldn't see them have maybe, you know, their first boyfriend or girlfriend or ever see them get married or anything like that. So I got on the computer and I wrote to the producers of Forks Over Knives and asked them when it might be showing in Calgary, Alberta. And they said, well, we'll let you know. And it came out like it was probably about a year later. I think it came out in 2011. I didn't get to see it until 2012 sometime, something like that. And when was your diagnosis? What year? Well, December 20th, 2007 was my actual right heart catheterization, but I had been diagnosed a month before that. Okay. So it had been like five years since your diagnosis, which was kind of like the maximum lifespan they had given you. I know. Yeah, I was very, because actually we started, my husband and I and another patient started a support group, Peter Lougheed Center. That hospital takes care of all the pulmonary hypertension patients from Southern Alberta and actually lower BC. So we actually go into BC as well. And patients have to come because it only affects two to four in a million. And about the 10 people we started the support group with, Myself and someone else are probably the first, the only original people. Most of them died within about two to three years. So I felt really lucky that I had already been on kind of a vegetarian. I would occasionally have chicken like diet, but I would say it was a junk food vegetarian (laughs) diet, you know, not knowing, oh, you should think about the actual ingredients inside it. I was just like, okay, no, no animals. That should be just fine. That should be enough. And unfortunately, it just isn't. You really have to take a little bit more charge than that, you know? Okay, so you wrote into Forks Over Knives, and then I'm assuming they they wrote back? (laughs) 
Yep. And then they let me know that it was actually, it's, I think it was called the Plaza Theater and it was two flights of stairs I had to climb. Now that's like asking someone like myself to like climb Mount Everest. There was no elevator. It was a, it was an alternative theater that it was shelled in, but we went three times because we saw we, the first time. I mean, when I say saw it, I mean, I could, I got the front row seat and I could see stuff and hear and they talked, what I was really struck with was Caldwell Esselstyn's work. He's out of the Cleveland Clinic, Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn Jr. And he talked about the thickening of the endothelium cells and the danger of them being damaged and how that can lead to heart disease, etc. And what I remembered was about a month before that, we had a, had a symposium where one of the pulmonologists on our team talked to us and about how... They don't know why, but with pulmonary arterial hypertension, their endothelium cells become very thick. So you can imagine, so you went from like full dilation and it gets narrower and narrower, then add on top of that a high fat diet or normal standard American diet with the blood getting very sticky and increase in plaque because we, we all produce naturally cholesterol and plaque. Plaque just sort of goes through our body naturally. And you can imagine that that's what people die of. They don't die directly due to pulmonary hypertension. They die because their heart collapses. It cannot take it anymore. It's just too much pressure on your heart. So after you saw that documentary, you thought, well, I'm going to give this a try? Well, we just went, my husband and I, my husband, Andrew, is a PhD in theoretical chemistry. So we both really value science and evidence-based science. And we went we're all in. We went like all in, like almost, but we said, we got to take our kids to it. And I'll never forget. We took them each like individually. And my daughter went, Hey, like there was a little miscommunication and she thought we were going to take her to another movie. And she goes, she's sitting here and she finally, she crosses her hands. She's only in grade school. And she goes, Hey, this is an educational movie. (laughs) And, uh, but we said, Hey guys, you know, we have to do this. This is going to help all of us. We're all going to benefit and we know it's going to be hard, but it's really worth it. So we might struggle at first and we're going to be getting used to it. We're going to try our very best. And we made lots of, you know, errors and stuff like that. Like, you know, but they were willing to be on board, you know, and when your kids are under your roof, it's not about a dictatorship, but it's about the fact that you have a responsibility to them. And then what they choose as an adult, that's up to them. But Hey, I want, we want to introduce you to this. And we know now that we have this information, we know. And of course we did a lot of reading with it too. We didn't just go by the movie. The movie was a real jumping off start for us to get as educated as possible. And we said, we really have an obligation now that we have this information because they kind of remembered there was a trampoline incident. We were in the emergency room. One of our kids had fallen or something. And we went to the emergency room because we had to have it checked out. And the kids saw this trampoline thing and they said, well, can we get a trampoline? It'd be really good exercise. And our kids are really good about research too. I said, okay, I'll tell you what. I'm willing to sit down with your dad and we'll talk about getting a trampoline. If you can help find the research that it's really safe and that there's not likely to be accidents. And so we had to do all the research together and we found out "Mm, not quite so pro friendly, you know, certainly people misuse them too. We agreed that that was, but they were used to our approach of, okay, we're open to it. And now let's do the research. We went shopping. We went to Walmart. The kids wanted something. I go, okay, put it in the basket. And then we would go somewhere quiet and we go through the basket and say, is this how you really want to spend your allowance? Because this is how much it'll take from your allowance. Or this is how much. And they ended up putting back stuff. Now that took a lot longer process. I didn't do it every time, but that's what they were used to. And we really introduced them pretty early on to need versus want. That, you know, there's three of them. If one person needs a new pair of boots, doesn't mean everybody else is going to get something, a new pair of boots. You know, only one person needs it. And I found our kids were pretty accepting of that as they saw that that's how we went by with the family. So we presented this. This is a need. We need to get healthier. 
And, and by healthier, um, can you define what you were eating specifically? Because sure. cutting out animal, like, because you were eating animal products before, it was a junk food vegetarian diet. So some people might not be as familiar with the movie like we are. Yes. Well, I would say like before it would be like some of the fake meats, those kind of things that are a lot higher. If you look at the level of fat in them, very high in fat, it's kind of like the difference between going into McDonald's and ordering fries and a Coke. And you say, Hey, that's vegan. That's animal free versus going in as someone trying to eat a whole plant-based kind of diet and choosing apple slices and water. There's a really big difference in nutrients. So we stay away from processed foods as much as possible. And if we, let's say, get something like crackers that is more processed down, then we try to look for, we're looking for oil-free crackers. If I make a pizza, I will make it out of a whole wheat pita that's oil-free as the crust, that kind of thing. So my plate is fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes. So different kinds of beans. There's about 107 different kinds of beans. So if you don't like one bean, you can try another. And a typical breakfast is like large flake oats with blueberries. I don't like porridge. I probably never will. And so what I do is I take frozen blueberries and I put them in the microwave with a large flake oats, just dry. And I just find that the blueberries kind of defrost and melt in the juice. It tastes fantastic to me. I love it. And uh, it works really, really well. And that's kind of my go-to. What I try to do is make my meals mindless and my eating mindful. So that there's meals that are just automatic pilot. I know they're going to taste good. I'll enjoy them. Because really, in a two-week period, we only eat about seven different things. So someone right now, let's say, who is eating meat, they might find that they've cut out the red meat and they're having chicken, but they're probably only having it seven different times, whether it's like a chicken sandwich or a chicken cutlet or roasted chicken. Like, you know, it's not, we don't have a lot of variety in a two-week period, actually. We think we do, but we really don't. And so, you know, of course, when we were vegetarian, we were having eggs, for example, that kind of thing. And yet they're really high in cholesterol and it's not necessary to, there's other ways to get protein without adding the cholesterol to it. I've really gotten into Indian food, but I make it all oil free, like a chana masala with a chickpea and a tomato onion gravy. And it's really flavorful. I've had people uh, who are you know, Indian, uh, Indian heritage, and they really like it because there's a lot of really easy things that you can end up making. And there's sort of go-to dishes that, you know, again, sort of automatic pilot, like, I know I'm going to like this. It's going to taste good. Cool. So you basically cut out all processed foods and started eating a whole foods, plant-based, as much oil-free as possible diet. Well, people forget that oil is a processed product. And they don't realize that, that it's been really processed down. So you're getting a very concentrated, you know, as they say, cut out the crap, the concentrated, refined and processed products. So how long did it take for your health to start turning around whenever you changed your diet? Well, within 15 months, I didn't, you know, I had made the decision that I was going to do this until I ended up going down to see John McDougall. He had actually came up with a five-day program at the time. He doesn't offer it now. He actually offers a three-day and a 10-day. But he did do a five-day program. And a friend of mine had just died from a lung transplant. She'd six months in hospital, never got out. And I was just like, I was crying when I got the news. And then up popped John McDougall's thing. And I went, you know what, I'm going to go for it. And it was in December of all things, December 2012, because I was still struggling at that time, despite the movie. Like, you know, I knew some of the why I didn't know very much of the how. And I decided we raised some money to be able to go by actually my son did that unbeknownst to me. And some people through our church and uh, some friends stepped forward, which I really appreciated. I had family members, extended family members, who thought I was actually kind of immoral for considering going to the States because I had no insurance. 
And they said, you could lose everything if you're hospitalized, you know, like, how could you put your children at risk like that? You're, you know, they'd have no home or anything. And I thought about it. And I really thought about it. Like I really took it seriously. I put aside the moral part. And I thought, what message am I giving my kids that if I become a parent, and if a parent becomes sick, they're not going to get the same access help that they would offer their children. Because if it was one of my children, I wouldn't care if I lost my house. I would do whatever possible I could to help my child. It really wouldn't matter if my house roof was rented or it was owned, you know, owned by the mortgage company, but owned, you know. And so I've got a, so I said to my husband, he's an environmental, he does environmental risk assessment. And I said, do a risk assessment on me. So we can plan the most safest way. How do we get out of the country if I end up starting to spiral down or need medical help so that we can just get across a border and I can get in Canada and I'll be okay health, you know, insurance wise and everything. So that's what we did. And so we were really super careful. And, you know, within 15 months of going down there, I got my sight back. What did your doctor say to this? Well, my doctors went, just keep on doing what you're doing. (laughs) Like not one of them, all I've had five specialists in addition then to my GP and not one of them has ever said to me, could you talk to a patient? Could you tell us more about it? Whatever. They just said, keep on doing what you're doing. Wow. There's still an underlying attitude that sometimes not said, but sometimes it's very overtly said is People will never follow this. That's crazy. Like one doctor said to me, even despite all my my benefits, all the sort of side effects of eating this way that have all been positive side, you know, up effects instead of side effects, said, I could never give up olive oil, you know? And I thought, oh my gosh, like you don't realize I'm not giving up. I'm gaining all these wonderful things like if you could have said to me, take these pills and 15 months later, you'll get your sight back, but you're going to have diarrhea, I'd probably still say, okay, I'll put up with the diarrhea to get my sight back. And ironically, I'm actually off my pH medications, which caused me to have, and these are the ugly things about illness that I didn't originally used to talk about. Now I go, yeah, people need to hear this because you know, we gloss over, like, even when you hear on television, the commercials for drugs, all the side effects, they kind of gloss over, like, you're going to have this awful effect, this awful effect, you know, you could even be suicidal. And um, I had, I woke up every morning incontinent, my bowels were incontinent every single morning for five years. Wow. And that, you know, that can really hit your ego pretty hard when you're only 50 sort of thing, you don't expect to have that happen. Mm -hmm. So those are the, and, and really being nauseated and those kind of things. I'm actually off those drugs now. So I've actually saved the the government. It was a mercy fund, but that cost was 36,000 to a hundred thousand a year. And so I've saved the government like $500,000. I should cut you a check. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I just hope that, you know, spend it on other people that need it. But guess how many people, if we all did, like a lot more people did this, even a small portion of people did this. Imagine what kind of money we would save in healthcare. Because what it costs me equivalent now is probably like $5 a day. So what other positive health benefits did you start seeing? So you got your eyesight back. I lost about 120 pounds. I became non-diabetic. And in fact, my endocrinologist all on his own said, I'm going to write the insurance company say you're not diabetic anymore. So you reverse diabetes with a whole foods plant-based diet. And, and I want people to know like, yeah, th- this, I, I, this is real. Like it's, this isn't it, just, this is like, this is a big deal. So if you know anyone in your family that has type two diabetes, like they don't have to live with it. It's a choice. Well, that's right. And I had gone from oral medication, metformin, right to insulin because that was supposed to have better control. And I also had really bad neuropathy. I don't have a squeak of neuropathy now. And wow. if anyone has had a neuropathy pain, it's nerve pain. It's very, it's really excruciatingly painful. And so imagine just getting rid of that pain because when you live in chronic pain, 
you don't realize that starts to affect, you know, your outlook. It starts to affect, you know, you start to feel depressed. It, it really is a bully in your life that you really want to escape, you know, because it starts taking over your life. It interferes in your relationships with other people and stuff. You're put, spending so much energy just trying to get, deal with the pain that it's, it's really tough getting my site back. I got off. I was being monitored. I was on the lung transplant monitoring list. They don't put you on the actual transplant list until your lungs are like that. And so I was getting pretty close because I'd already been assessed and everything. So they put me on the monitoring list. And if I had had one little turn, I would have been flown up to Edmonton to possibly get a lung transplant if it was even available. And those have been all the most incredible benefits. And an additional one was that in 2013, there was floods here in Calgary. And at the time I was on an IV antibiotic, I was seen by home care on a daily basis. And I thought the antibiotics were just making me pretty sleepy. So I wasn't worried about it. I actually didn't know there was a flood because we, I was in my, our bedroom and we don't have a television in our bedroom. So I didn't realize, and we didn't, weren't flooded ourselves. And I, so I was really out of it that way, but I caught a call about three days into the thing. And the doctor said, you know, the labs have been backed up for three days. We just got your results. Now you have to come to the hospital right now. Like don't get out of your pajamas, just come right away. And when I got there, it turned out I was in acute kidney failure, 4% for my kidneys. And so my kidneys had already been damaged already through the diabetes and all the drugs I had been on. And so this diet, so far I've been able to keep off dialysis despite having end-stage kidney failure. Like, you know, and because it's the healthiest diet, if you anybody looks at nutritionfacts.org, Dr. Greger's work, he will show the research behind that this is the best diet for people who have kidney disease. So what I liked about it is I felt it was like a win-win gamble to take this on. First of all, as Dr. Codwell-Osselston says, there's no morbidity to this diet. In other words, this will not cause you harm that you could die from. It's going to get you health, not harm. That's huge. Then I thought, if I have to have a lung transplant, guess what? They're going to do a full months and months of screening to make sure I have no cancer, no other diseases, because after all, they've got this healthy lung. They don't, they can't just give it to anybody. They've got to give it into a receptacle that's going to take good care of it. And also that it can be, this receptacle lasts for a while. So I thought, how do I stay cancer free? I follow this kind of diet because the evidence is in that this can help with several forms of especially lifestyle-related cancer like prostate, breast, bowel cancer, uterine cancer even. So there's another potential win. So I was really, I mean, I'm not a gambler. So this was a really safe, safe option for me. Was it hard? Yes. Why was it hard? Because it wasn't a habit yet. But you can train your taste buds. It only takes about 30 days, and you'll notice a difference in salt, 90 days for fat cravings, and then, you know, you're on your way. And you also look at food differently. Food can be pleasurable, but you're not using it as an escape pleasure. So can you you quickly just kind of go down the list of health issues that you had that your plant-based diet reversed, that medicine couldn't reverse? And also, I just want to repeat that you were terminally ill. In 2007, they told you that, and now it's 2019. And I'm still considered terminally ill, but yet it has a big major reversal was, first of all, my idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension. The World Health Organization says there's four levels. I was at three to three and a half. I'm now down to one. I've been assessed at a one. So that's not been heard of. We're just submitted for publication. Dr. Esselstyn's a co-author. My husband's another one and myself. For publication, our study, there's only one other study in pulmonary hypertension by way of using nutrition, and it's with beetroot juice. I believe it's in Sweden. And so we are showing this as a case study over seven years, the difference that just eating this way Because I monitored, here's the thing, you know, it seems like a too good to be true. My blood work's monitored on a monthly, if not every two-week basis. So the only thing that's changed is I'm off my pH medication, which is unheard of. I'm no longer diabetic. I was an insulin-dependent diabetic for over five years. 
and I'm no longer diabetic and nor do I have to test myself. I no more pricks. I just eat and I don't have to worry about that. And my neuropathy is gone. My severe sleep apnea, it's now down to a very minor, they feel like it's almost because of just the way the size of my jaw, not because of, you know, I've reversed it very much till it's just very slight in comparison. So that's a really good news for me. I'm off my oxygen during the day. I've not had any fainting or dizziness spells, which I had fainted out in the public, just flat down on the street kind of thing with no notice, collapsed. Not had one of those incidences since. I do have oxygen at night, but it's from six liters down to two now. So that's a huge difference. I couldn't exercise at all. I literally could not walk the almost more than two car lengths. That's how far I could get without having to stop and breathe. Now I do about 60 minutes of exercise on an exercise new step machine that's a resistance sort of bike kind of thing. I take my time with it. I'm not going to be fast like other people. I won't walk as fast as you, but I'm up and walking ambulatory from having been in a wheelchair and using a walker. And I've lost weight. I've lost 120 pounds and continue to keep it off. So those are the types of things that have been real changes. And my family has gotten healthier. So the side effect that other people, that pebble in the pond, my husband's much healthier. My kids, my son's lost over 70 pounds. He eats this way. He's independent. He's on his own. He's living in Ontario. And we ended up giving him an Instapot for his graduation gift. And he was thrilled. (laughs) And we swap recipes all the time and that kind of thing. And our daughter eats a lot more like this. You know, she occasionally has some cheese, but otherwise she's maintained this as well. So we're really pleased with that. You know, when I see that, we've also been able to contribute to the community. We've had the energy to be able to we offer a potluck once a month. And we also offer, we call that, our, and with a vegetation and a, a dish exchange, And then in the fourth Monday of the month, we do staying power, which is helping people just with the lifestyle to recognize that sometimes there's social and psychological aspects to it. How do we get support and feel supported by other people? And then I do a monthly newsletter. And then we put on a big Fork Smart Summit, which will be coming up May 11th, where we're having Dr. David Jenkins from University of Toronto, creator of the Glycemic Index, Jane Esselstyn who's written for Engine 2 and Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease, cookbook author and creator. And then Doug Lyle, who's been featured, he's a psychologist featured in Forks Over Knives. That's so awesome. That's a really powerful panel of people. Yes, we are feeling very fortunate. So people can get tickets for that right now, forksmartsummit.org, or just go to forksmart.org. Dot org, and then you can see all the information about the summit. There's a little advertisement there. That's probably the easiest thing, forksmart.org. I know there are people coming from the United States, actually, to come to our summit. And can you talk a little bit more about your website? Yeah, my website, what I do is I do a monthly article. I'm very interested in, we don't have recipes on it per se, but in the newsletter, I do include a recipe that I test at least three times. And I get very creative. People have really liked them. I work with some plant-based families. And so I kid test them as well as adult test them. So I write an article, a kind of little think piece for people as well. And I'm looking particularly at the social and psychological smarts that it takes to live whole plant-based. Awesome. Okay. So what is the best way for people to get in touch with you and to learn more about the psychological aspect of habit change? Yeah. Well, um, they'd be welcome to, they can write me at Kate at forksmart.org or they can call me at 403-519-9261. I offer a free half hour consultation and I've met with people literally around the world, Sweden, Ireland, Singapore, and talked with them and been able to be of help to them. I give information. And then with some people, I do some individual coaching. And we can just do it by phone or Skype, whatever works for people. 
but we do it all for cost recovery. I really volunteer my services and then it goes to Fork Smart. Green Analysis supports our our website. So it goes channels back into there because what we want to do is just recover our costs, obviously, for doing all this work. Well, that's an incredible service that you're offering people because a lot of times people want the coaching. They want someone to help them go through the change of getting to a plant-based diet because, as you mentioned, a lot of people do understand the why, but the how part is a lot harder to execute. It is. It is. And sometimes it just takes a little bit more patience with it. And, you know, I personally find that meal plans, while they might look like a a great investment at the beginning, it really, I find that what I do instead is I just customize it for that person because we all have our own individual tastes and our family have our ways and cultures of what we want. And we can often take any recipe and end up converting it to plant-based. Is it going to taste exactly the same? No, it isn't. But how my mom cooks and how I cook isn't exactly the same either for the same dish. And your taste buds do change where you really start to taste the food, not all the chemicals that we're adding to it, not all the disguised versions of it. Well, that's so awesome. I'm so thankful that you came on the podcast and you shared not only your inspiring story, but there's a lot of really good bits about being more empathetic, about showing compassion, and also about parenting. So you're you're like, have so much wisdom to share. And there's probably like a whole other array of topics that we could cover in addition to what we've already talked about. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I'm really impressed with the work that you're doing as well, Sonia. And I'm glad that I could join you and your audience today. Thank you. Man, there was a lot in there. And I love how she got honest. She got raw. And she told us all these different things that happened to her and how she dealt with it. It's really inspiring also to see there's something in positive psychology called post-traumatic growth. We always hear about post-traumatic stress disorder, which is very real and very detrimental to a lot of people. But a lot of times, whenever somebody has something bad happen to them, they have something called post-traumatic growth where they end up being better than they would have been had they not had the trauma happen to them. So it happens a lot and it's really cool to see, especially in this case, how Kate is putting a lot of her effort and energy into making sure that people have the resources and the support to change their diet, to prevent diseases and be healthier in their lives. If you want more of the stuff that I'm putting out into the world, I have a bi-weekly free email newsletter. And to be honest, it's a little bit less than bi-weekly. My goal is to have it be bi-weekly, but really it's probably once every three weeks. But it has a lot of great information, links I come across, some personal blog posts that I wrote. And it's just a fun resource that I like to provide to people and just a great way to keep in touch. So if you want to join that email newsletter, go to sonyalooney.com and there'll be a little pop-up that comes up and you can just enter in your email. All right, that does it for this week's show. Wishing you guys all the best success in your training and adventures. Be healthy. See ya.